millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is A History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is part three of three on the ruin and the deluge. Last week I described the invasion of Poland and Lithuania by the Swedish king Charles X and also by the Russians under Tsar Alexis, coinciding with a major Cossack rebellion. Charles's invasion began well, and soon the newly elected king of Poland, John Casimir, had lost control of almost all the Commonwealth's territory. However, the Poles began to fight back, and Charles's campaign started to unravel. A broad alliance was forming to keep Swedish ambitions in check, which included the Poles, Russians, the Dutch, the Holy Roman Emperor, Denmark and Frederick William of Brandenburg. The latter was always eager to shake off the shackles imposed by Sweden and now saw his opportunity to switch sides. As for the King of Denmark, Frederick III, he was keen to take advantage of Sweden's preoccupation in Poland by trying to recover territory lost to the Swedes in the previous decade. He gathered one army to strike at Gothenburg and central Sweden, and another to take the isolated Swedish enclave of Bremen-Verden. It appeared that Charles had bitten off more than he could chew, but on hearing the news that the Danes had joined his enemies, rather than suing for peace, he astonished Europe by launching a counter-attack into Denmark. He broke off his campaign in Poland, leaving his generals to hold Royal Prussia as best they could, while he led another long and rapid march across Pomerania and into Holstein with an army of 9,000 veterans. Henrik Lund, in his book, A Warrior Dynasty, describes as a masterstroke the unexpected attack on Denmark from the south, while most of the Danish troops were in the north for the expected attack on Sweden. The Swedish army quickly recovered Bremen-Verden, then marched into the Jutland Peninsula, which they controlled almost all of by the onset of winter. Charles realised that to achieve complete victory over the Danes, he needed to attack the capital, Copenhagen, and that he must do so quickly before the Danes could bring troops to defend it. 
Copenhagen is separated from the mainland, Jutland, by two of the three straits which connect the North Sea to the Baltic Sea, the Little Belt and the Great Belt. At the end of January 1658, Charles took the audacious decision of crossing the frozen straits to reach Copenhagen. Firstly, he led his army across the frozen Nittebelt to occupy the island of Funen. Two troops of cavalry horse were lost when the ice cracked after the passage of the cannons. The king himself had a lucky escape when his royal sledge disappeared into the waters soon after he vacated it. Despite these hazards, the winter march continued. On the 6th of February, Charles and his army embarked on the even longer crossing over the Great Belt towards the largest of Denmark's islands, Zealand. The cold was now much less severe, and a strong wind increased the risk that the ice might break. But the gamble paid off. The Swedes managed to reach Zealand, and with their surprise attack, completely demoralised their enemy. The Danish troops, though larger in number, capitulated within a week of the Swedes' landing, and agreed to the humiliating treaty of Roskilde, whereby they surrendered several provinces, including Scania, the southern tip of the Swedish peninsula, the island of Bornholm, and the Norwegian city of Trondheim. For Denmark, the terms were harsh, losing a third of their territory and indirectly much revenue too. The outside owners of ships, mainly the Dutch and English, were generally pleased because for the first time two independent kingdoms would control the Sound, the straits between the North and Black Seas, making it harder for either one to impose exorbitant tolls. However, having signed the treaty, King Frederick III of Denmark delayed in its implementation. Charles was impatient to return his army to the Commonwealth, so in August 1658, less than six months after the Peace of Roskilde, he resumed the war with intention of the complete subjugation of Denmark. Such blatant aggression was a major military and diplomatic blunder, and several powers actively engaged to support Denmark. Peace became an urgent priority for the great powers, as the Baltic trade could survive separate campaigns, but not the disruption of a long and general war. So the Dutch sent a fleet to force its way through the Sound and relieve Copenhagen and also an army to the island of Funen to help the Danish there against the Swedish forces of occupation. The great elector of Brandenburg, Frederick William, entered Holstein in strength against Sweden and both Austrian imperialist and Polish troops kept up the pressure on the Swedish outposts in Pomerania. Charles X, however, stubbornly refused to give up the fight. He summoned the Swedish Parliament, the Reichstag, to meet at Gothenburg. But in February 1660, before the first session opened, the 37-year-old king suddenly fell ill. Within a few days he was dead, apparently from pneumonia, leaving as heir his four-year-old son, also called Charles. Peace talks began almost immediately with the French and Dutch as mediators. The terms of the Peace of Roskilde were reimposed, although by the Treaty of Copenhagen, Denmark recovered Trondheim and Bornholm. 
French diplomacy was largely responsible for a broader settlement agreed at the monastery of Oliva, outside Danzig, in May 1660, where peace was restored between Sweden, Poland, Brandenburg and the Emperor Leopold I. Sweden's possession of Livonia was recognised and her possessions in the empire left undisturbed. Frederick of Brandenburg was able to get his sovereignty over ducal Prussia confirmed. The main loser was therefore King John Casimir of Poland, who as well as losing Livonia and ducal Prussia, agreed to renounce his dynastic claims in Sweden. The Commonwealth's agony was not yet over, however, as the Polish-Muscovite War continued in 1658. That year, Tsar Alexis sent an army of 30,000 into Lithuania and achieved some success. But the Russian position was weakened by the gradual disintegration of the Muscovite Cossack alliance. In part, this was due to the increasing authoritarian air with which the Russians conducted their relations with the Cossacks. Also, it was clear from the diplomatic manoeuvres of Khmelnytsky and his successor, Ivan Vyhovsky, that they might abandon the Muscovite alliance and seek to establish a genuinely independent Cossack state. Hetman Vyhovsky struggled to maintain unity among the Cossacks. When Moscow refused to help Vyhovsky against a group of rival Cossacks, he sought instead assistance from the Crimean Tatars, with whom he negotiated a treaty in February 1658. Together they attacked rivals at their base in Politava, and Vachovsky for now reasserted his authority. Unhappy with relations with Muscovy, he turned to the Commonwealth. After lengthy negotiations, the two sides signed an agreement in September 1658. The Treaty of Hadiak. This was an attempt to create a framework for a new federation, which would consist of three equal partners Poland, Lithuania, and Ukraine. Unfortunately for the plan's proponents, the history of animosity between the Poles and Ukrainians was difficult to overcome. Also, many Zaporozhian Cossacks continued to look towards Muscovy and so were not interested in joining the Hadiak. Confederation. Concerning their motivations, Paul Mogoski writes in the History of Ukraine, quote, Hadiak revealed how much less interested were the leading social strata in Ukraine in attaining independence for their homeland than in retaining or expanding their own social and political privileges within an existing state. If their own interests could not be furthered in Poland, then perhaps Muscovy might offer a better chance. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The proposed union of Hediac was viewed by Muscovy as a declaration of war, and in the spring of 1659, Tsar Alexis sent a massive army under Alexei Trubetskoy to invade Ukraine. Tempted into besieging a small Cossack garrison of the town of Konotop, Trubetskoy fell into a trap. Attacked on the 8th of July, 1659, by a small Cossack force, he was drawn into pursuit, but he stumbled onto Vyhovsky's Cossack and Tatar army. His army was destroyed as Cossack firepower cut down the Muscovite cavalry. 5,000 Muscovites were captured and many more were killed. Although Vyhovsky was victorious in battle, he lost the debate within his own ranks about their future relationship with Poland. He stepped down as hetman to be replaced by the son of Bogdan Khmernitsky named Yuri. Nevertheless, for the Russians, their crushing defeat at the Battle of Konotop was a massive blow. The Muscovite position in Lithuania was, if anything, more precarious than in Ukraine. Unable to maintain a large force there, Muscovy failed to obtain popular support for its rule. After John Casimir of Poland signed the Peace of Oliva, in which agreement with Sweden was reached, he turned his attention to Muscovy. He launched offensives into Lithuania, quickly taking a string of fortresses and then inflicting a devastating defeat against the Muscovites at the Battle of Chudnov in October 1660. After 12 years of debilitating warfare, the Commonwealth was exhausted and unable to follow up on these victories, which was fortunate for Muscovy, which itself was under great strain. Tsar Alexis was therefore willing to negotiate a peace with Sweden. The Russian threats so alarming to the Swedes four years before had failed to materialise. Moscow and Sweden agreed on a settlement at Cardis in 1661, in which the Russians handed back Dorpat to Sweden, returning to the status quo between the two sides of 1656. For Sweden, their gains were a long way off from the glory days of 1655, but they were fortunate in coming out of the war overall strengthened. War dragged on, however, between Muscovy and the Commonwealth. 
1664, John Casimir of Poland led an army of 50,000 to seize back control of Ukraine. He besieged the town of Gruchov, but was unable to make a breakthrough, and finally retreated under pressure from a Russian army. The failed campaign was Poland's last serious attempt to take back control from Muscovy, territory the east of the river Dnieper. The Ukrainian Cossacks found themselves divided between the Polish sphere of influence on the right bank of the Dnieper and the Muscovite sphere of influence on its left bank. The Cossack hetmans, especially Yuri Khmelnytsky and Petro Doroshenko, tried to unify the diverse factions, but they were unsuccessful. The possibility of an independent Ukrainian Cossack state became even more remote after Poland and Muscovy, exhausted by their inconclusive wars, decided to reach a peace. Negotiations continued for three years until in 1667 when both sides agreed to the Treaty of Andrusova. Muscovy retained Smolensk and other territories in Lithuania, while Ukraine was formally divided into two halves along the Dnieper. That didn't stop the fighting, as the hetman of the right bank, Petro Doroshenko, appealed to the Ottomans for help. The end result, though, was that in 1672 the Ottomans were able to annex large swathes of territory on the right bank, including the region of Podolia, and would have taken yet more territory had they not been pushed back by a Polish army at the Battle of Khotin in 1673, at the same site as another historical battle in 1621. For the next few years, the Ottomans also tried to seize the left bank of Ukraine. Finally, in 1681, Muscovy and the Ottoman Empire signed a peace treaty, the Treaty of Bakhtisarai, whereby both sides agreed to a 20-year armistice. Poland did not sign up to a treaty as it could never acquiesce to Ottoman control of Podolia or any other part of what it considered the historical Polish patrimony. Ukraine's three-decade period, called the Period of Ruin, witnessed great changes in the political status of the country. The various Ukrainian Cossack hetmans, starting with Bogdan Khmelnytsky, continually changed their allegiances between their more powerful neighbours. The result by the 1680s was a Ukraine ravaged by civil war and foreign invasion, with little hope of independence or even full autonomy, and with its territory divided among Poland, Muscovy and the Ottoman Empire. Ukraine's division would have profound effects over time on its people's identity and culture. The assimilation of part of Ukraine is of great historical significance for the Russians, as they took a big step forwards to establishing themselves permanently upon the Black Sea, and also in a position where they could take a close interest in proceedings in Central Europe. One interesting side note is that from 1642 to 1681, the Duchy of Courland and Semigalia in Latvia was ruled by Jacob Kettler, a vassal of the King of Poland and grandson of the last Grand Master of the Livonian Order. Remarkably, the campaigns in the earlier part of the century left Courland Peninsula relatively unscathed. In 
the Duke worked hard to develop the port of Vindau, and when the Thirty Years' War ended, Duke Jacob had his own navy and a merchant fleet that exported to England and even Venice. The island of Tobago in the Americas briefly became Jacob's colony, as did an island at the mouth of the river Gambia. Windau started to become a serious trading competitor to other ports on the Baltic coast. But in 1658, during the Swedish invasion, it lost much of its merchant fleet and virtually all its navy. Its nascent industries were destroyed and its colonies fell prey to the Dutch and English empire builders. The story demonstrates the difficulty for any small power of the time avoiding being caught in the crossfire between the greater powers or even of survival in this period of great conflict. As for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, after the Peace of Andrusova, we are still a leading force in the region, but its international standing had suffered as a result of territorial losses. Decades of warfare had also left deep scars on its economy. Warsaw, for example, was burnt by invaders and its palaces pillaged. Elsewhere, many small peasant farms were abandoned, particularly in Estonia and Livonia. Poland also suffered from the decline of the Baltic grain trade. King John Casimir worked hard to try and strengthen the authority of the Polish crown and make it hereditary rather than elective, warning that unless the system was changed, Poland-Lithuania would be partitioned by its neighbours. Shortly after the Peace of Andrusova, John Casimir gave up hope of change and abdicated, bringing to an end the Vasa period of history of the Commonwealth. In spite of the fact that the wars during his reign clearly demonstrated that the Commonwealth had been woefully unprepared and was lucky in some ways not to have suffered even greater losses, John Casimir's prophecy went unheeded. The same or Polish Parliament protected its rights and countered any royal initiative for reform. This stands in marked contrast to, for example, Denmark, where Frederick III was able to successfully assert the authority of the crown, which went on to shape the form of enlightened absolutism that prevailed in his kingdom until 1848. All the nations of Europe were finding it necessary to adapt to the challenges of the crises of the 17th century, but some were succeeding better than others. Thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about another war which should be better well known, the Anglo-Dutch Wars, three wars between 1652 and 1674. If you like this podcast, why not give it a review on iTunes or wherever you download the podcast from? Why not give the Facebook page a like of the History of Europe Key Battles podcast? Or why not join as a Patreon? Just go to www.patreon.com stroke History Europe. For $3 a month, you'll be able to listen to a few extra episodes and also be able to listen to the standard 
episodes a week before the rest of the world. So I hope you can join me next time. We're going to talk about the Anglo-Dutch Wars. Until then, all the best and goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.